Well, people talk about hope and change, and there's only one hope, that is Jesus Christ, and there's only one change, and that's regeneration. Otherwise, nothing changes, and there's no hope. John MacArthur had said that. I saw that on uh, somebody's Facebook last night, and I said, oh, that's really good. That's very timely, isn't it? So I, uh, I just kind of kiped that from there. Uh, and I know we're all too well aware of what's happening Tuesday. There's probably no need for me to tell you how important it is to uh, go out and vote. Uh, this is the most pivotal time in uh, the history, I think, of this nation. As we exercise the duty and privilege that's given to citizens of this country to decide which road we're going to take. And we certainly have taken an extreme left turn, probably for many years. We continue to go down this path uh, further. We know that destruction awaits as it's anti-God. You know, the pulpits in this nation have historically been the sounding board. They have been the warning stations as the Word of God is proclaimed to people. Uh, The Puritan preachers were totally cognizant of what would happen if power was given to people that were the wrong people in leadership. They knew about the corruption. They knew about the sinfulness of man. And of course you give it to one who is not of Christ and not anywhere near that. Whenever he is given power, he will take advantage of it, take advantage of the people. Of course that had been exhibited in uh, England. And uh, you think of the 1600s where many of our forefathers actually came from. They had actually experienced losing freedom. They had experienced losing their liberties, even being raided late at night in their own homes and having things taken away from them, being arrested. And that's the reason they came here to America, so that they would have the freedom and the liberties, ultimately so that they could worship God. And that is the ultimate, and that's called religious freedom. So the pulpit was the most important place for the people at that time to be informed, to be warned, and especially to be strengthened and encouraged. And of course the pulpit was used to to tell people uh, this is how we are to be as far as citizens. So they never held back from proclaiming that and uh, proclaiming from the Word of Truth. And of course we know the Word of Truth is what sets one free, isn't it? You should know the truth and the truth will set you free. And it does. We are free people uh, regardless. The Bible also says that righteousness exalts a nation. Righteousness. So it definitely is appropriate for churches and their pastors to help people to understand better in practical terms what this righteousness is. This righteousness. What does it look like? What does righteousness look like when we think of tax rates, when we think of health care, marriage, homosexual issues, uh, pro-life, or abortion, foreign policy? The Bible has everything to say about all of those and many more. The Bible has the truth for all those issues that, uh, that are there. And so we know what's right and wrong when we are people of the Word. Um, God cares. God cares about you. God cares about this church. God cares about this town. God cares about this state. He cares about this nation. He cares about this election. 
He does, because He is a God who is involved in everything. And there, we know there are going to be millions of Americans that will vote, maybe the most ever in history possibly. And they will voice their opinions. They get that opportunity. Now, there's something good about that, and there's something not so good about it also, though. This is what Winston Churchill had said, and I think he actually quoted other people. He said this, Democracy is the worst form of government, except all the others. <laughs> that sounds like Winston Churchill, doesn't it? You say, well, d- democracy, that, that's, that's it, isn't it? Isn't that the greatest? Well, yeah, but you see what it does. It, it allows people who are ungodly to cast votes and make their opinions. And so that's why we're at, we're at today, one of the reasons. Uh, but also, godly people can make an influence too by doing that. So it is a good thing, but we see what comes with it. He also said this. This kind of supports that. At the bottom of all the tributes paid to democracy is the little man walking into the little booth with a little pencil, making a little cross on a little bit of paper. No amount of rhetoric or voluminous discussion can possibly diminish the overwhelming importance of that point. End of quote. It's hugely important. But we have people voting that have no idea what the ramifications can be. The stakes are high. People are making decisions based on commercials, which are sometimes lies or distorted. Maybe a candidate's grimace or a smile is the reason people will vote for one. Uh, Or just because their family has always voted that way for a political party. Uh, They may not even know what they believe and don't even care. Uh, Maybe they think the government will take care of them and supply all the things that they need without working for it. (laughs) As stated by World Magazine, and this is the latest issue that just came out. Thank you, Janice, for (laughs) always bringing those to me. Keeps us well informed here. An election with a tightly divided nation is from a materialist standpoint, the worldly standpoint, a crapshoot. That's what the elections are. But from a Christian worldview perspective, desires. One that requires intense prayer along with trust in God's providential guidance of all that happens. That's the way it comes from a Christian view. We pray and we trust in His providence and His guidance. Now, that's what we're going to really be talking about today as we're going to be coming out of uh, 1 Timothy 2. Even though we vote, and it really truly matters, it matters. But you know what? There's really only one vote that's going to matter. When it all comes down to it, we can cast all the votes we want, but it's going to come down to God's vote. He's the one who elects. Uh, he's the one who makes the all-important decision. God is the one who decides who's going to rule this nation. You know what? That gives me great comfort. That gives me encouragement and strength no matter what happens, whether it goes my way or the other way. If it goes the way that we want, we get somewhat conservative rule in our state and and in our country. Uh, If one stands for righteous things or some of them, whether it be life (laughs) or traditional marriage and morals or patriotism, 
then we can praise God and we can have hope that maybe some things can be turned around to help our temporal life that's here, that's short anyway. But righteousness would somewhat still rule. Or maybe it doesn't go the way we desire. And the way that we prayed and we continue to have even the worst leadership that we've ever had in this country. And we'd be led to full tilt socialism and totalitarianism and dictatorship. We as Christians can stand and praise God. Now that sounds odd. We're not going to cry and say, oh, woe is us, and we're doomed now. But we're going to say, thank you, Lord, for giving the person that you elected there. That's how sovereign He is. He controls who are the leaders. And we're going to be looking at some Scripture a little later to show how absolute sovereign our God is. When we believe in a sovereign God, there are no mistakes, even though it sure looks like it. When He puts people into office, He is in control. No matter how bad the government is, we could get into a situation where there is no government at all. Now, how would you like that? No government. And you say, I don't want communism, socialism, neither do I. But what if you were in that state? There sure have been a lot of Christians under that kind of state and that kind of rule. I don't want it. But to have no rule at all would be the end of it all. Uh, anarchy, absolute anarchy would uh, blow uh, the world away, especially in these times. So we have to be thankful that God is the one who grants government. We know there will be there will always be sinful men in high positions, and usually that's the way it is. If you look throughout history, you won't see a lot of great leaders that you would really be just amazed by and, and they would stand for everything that you believe in. There have been a few. This nation has had several. You think of the, the Mao Zedongs, the Hitlers, and the Stalins, and the Lenins. They killed millions of people. And just the last century. But it's being worked out for good. God's working this thing out. He's got it under control. He has a perfect plan. And our King reigns. We sang a song about the King this morning. And He's there with us. You know, it's like we kind of invite Him in, although He's already here. You know what? There's really only one perfect government. That's monarchy. The King of Kings rules. Not a man king, but the monarchical King Jesus, where He's truly ruling. And He's ruling right now. Despite there are human rulers over us, He's actually the King, the ruler even though we may not see it sometimes, that's why it's so important to go to the throne. Go to the throne room often and offer up petitions for these leaders that He actually put into place. Now that sounds backwards. To be praying for them that He put into place even though they are not representing His kind of beliefs at all. What it does, it restores our right kind of thinking of what God is doing. And our mind becomes renewed. And we get in tune with the right priorities from the King. So when we go to Him in prayer, have you noticed that all of a sudden, it's not about me anymore. seems like much of the time, things are about me. Me, me, me. No, no, no. Jesus said, 
You have to die. Have you noticed the upside downness of it is of Christianity? Everything seems to be opposite of the way the world thinks and the way that we used to think and the way we even think now. <laughs> that the Word of God continues to change our minds. But we get in tune with the King about the right priorities. And this is the most important topic that we deal with this morning in our text for the day. So let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Let's see what God has to say about this all-important time that we are engaged with. How does He want us to respond to all this? Well, He has a word for us. He has a word for us individually. He has a word for us all together in this church and the whole body of Christ. And this is all about encouragement today, Lord. Right? This is all what You're giving us, Lord. You're giving us truth. You're giving us strength and comfort and encouragement. And I don't care what goes on. I do care, but at the same time, in another sense, I'm not going to let it totally dominate my way of thinking. I'm going to let Christ dominate. So we pick up chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, that's pretty good to start with, isn't it? That means this is important. I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. Oh, what a word. What a word from the Lord. You know what? Praying just might be the hardest spiritual discipline there is. I think it is for me. Quite an exercise. Quite a privilege. Quite a duty. But it's a spiritual discipline that demands effort and concentration. We can be praying to the Lord and the next thing you know, our minds are way out in left field and they've been taken somewhere else and say, how did that happen? Ten minutes later you're wondering, I was talking to the Lord and now I'm over here thinking about this. We have to concentrate. It is, it is hard. We can be so distracted in prayer. Prayer is probably one of the most important ministries that each one of us has. It's right at the top. The greatest thing that we have to do is to worship God, right? There is no more important thing than to worship God, whether it be corporately like this or in our own private lives with Christ every day, every moment. But evangelistic praying is so important. It's right up there. It's right up there right after worshiping God. Evangelistic praying. Praying for the lost is actually commanded as we look here in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And so this text is something that has been on our hearts for many, many years. Many of us have been praying for family and neighbors and friends that you know that are lost. And we hear it constantly. And it's in our prayers. That's a, that's a thing that um, you know I don't think we avoid. We know about that. We keep that in mind. Even if we don't even mention it here, we still know about those people and those lost people. We all know those. Uh, the thing is, we want to be reminded of that. To, to continue that kind of prayer for, for the lost. 
and uh, mainly we're we're focusing on uh, not only all men, but especially the kings uh, are the ones who in authority. As we look at that, uh, it's interesting. Uh, prayer here is really given to us in four different terms. That's kind of fascinating. First of all, he's saying, "I want you to check this out. I want you to know how important this is." And I know that we've heard political things for the last year and boy especially the last few months and now this last week we just that's all we hear if you, if you turn on the TV radio everything it's like oh no can I get away from this at least at church no because <laughs> it's part of our life it's, it's amazing but here's what God has to say about it this is much more important than what you'll ever hear on TV or radio internet right here here's what's important this is first of all I urge. I am urging you, Paul says. There's there's an urgency here as he brings in this thought of prayer. And he uses entreaties, he uses prayers, he uses petitions and thanksgivings. You might have some different words, but they're all meaning the same thing. uh, But these four terms are synonyms, but yet they describe it a little bit more as he really is urging them. He says, okay, uh, I want you to offer entreaties. Now, entreaties means there's a need. Uh, it's putting forth the idea of if people have needs and they need to be supplied. There are needs that need to be supplied. So we make entreaties. People have a most basic need, and guess what that most basic need is? Salvation. That's the most important thing. And, of course, when we have prayer, sometimes there will be somebody that's in the hospital or very sick or uh, could be dying. And we pray for them and their physical well-being, but we know that there's something even much more important than that, and that's eternity. Because there's something that goes on after this life. So we always bring that forth, uh, that uh, if they're not saved, that they would have salvation. So we would desire that God would supply the need that they have. So when Paul says entreaties, that's what he's meaning here. Then the next word is prayers. You say, well, I thought... This was all prayers. Well, there are certain words for prayers, and this is another word for prayers. And this is the idea of being directed at God. It's almost like falling down before Him. It's uh, being in worship of Him. And it's all about His glory. So we direct our worship to Him because whenever we pray, He gets glorified. And He is definitely glorified whenever some people become saved. And even politicians become saved. If we pray for someone who's lost, may become believers, glory to God, right? God always gets the glory, but that that one we can really identify with. So, uh, entreaties is uh, wanting a need met, and then prayers is dealing with focusing on God in this, in, in worship. And so, prayer is worship. And definitely, isn't it? And then the next word is petitions. To make petitions, it's pleading deeply. Now this is where it really gets kind of tricky. Yeah, I can pray for my leaders. And yeah, I can go to God and and pray that He gets the glory. But this one brings in a deep, felt compassion for those people who are lost. Of course, first of all, He's saying in this verse, on behalf of all men. That means, you know, just everybody and anybody. We intercede for them. We make intercession. We come in between God and them. They are blinded in their sin and all of the evil and hatred 
and everything that goes with them, and we're coming there instead, right in the middle. It's like uh, Job said that he needed an umpire. He needed one to be in the middle, an intercessor, a mediator. So like Moses, we are mediators. We intercede for those people that we so much dislike as far as their actions, their beliefs, and everything they're doing to this country. And we hate those things. Yes, that's because there's righteousness there, but yet we're still to have the same kind of compassion for them that we would for anybody else, and that's hard to believe. That is hard to believe. And that's what Paul was saying here. He says, I want you to feel for them. Do you, do, you, do you know what Paul's asking here? And we'll get into that a little bit in the context here. Uh, but the next word is thanksgiving. That's part of prayer also. So we have entreaties based upon their needs and needs being supplied. We have prayers which is dealing with God and worship and Him being glorified. And we have petitions that says, I have a real compassion for that evil leader that they'd be saved. It's really on my heart. Wow. And then thanksgiving. This is an expression of gratitude no matter what. No matter what. Now the Roman emperor who is so antagonistic toward you, you people at Ephesus. Paul is writing to Timothy, right? The context, now we're going back 2,000 years now. The context is this. Most important to you guys? Timothy, I want you to tell your congregation they're supposed to be praying compassionately and giving thanks. Be praying for that emperor, Nero, Pray for Him. Thank God for Him. Offer up supplications for Him. Mediate for Him. And you know what? Some of them now are gritting their teeth. And they're going, Lord, bless me, rule. <laughs> and then they really go on to what they want to pray about. <laughs> no, make prayers entreaties, supplications, thanksgivings for all people. Even for those who are in authority, and most of the people that were in authority that they knew of, ever knew of in the past, and ever were now, and ever were going to be, were people who were opposed to everything that we see in Scripture. Their temptation would have been just like ours today. And believe me, we're all guilty or at least I am, of hating the thought that I'm really to pray compassionately for one who wants to destroy us. <laughs> Paul says, here's the disposition that you have towards the world, towards all people, towards all the authority. Here's what you're to do. You're to be praying for them in every way to entreat God, supplicate them, begging. Paul is just begging, begging that God would bless them with salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, you're to pray for those kings, those who are in authority, that are giving us such a hard time. That's what he's saying to Timothy. And that's what we're being told today. You're to desire 
that they would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Pray for them. You know what? My mind says they're not going to change. And they're always going to be that way. You know, chances are, probably so. Few there be that find it. But what would happen if the whole church here in this country was praying for these leaders who are so against God and want God to even be taken out of any kind of conversation? What would happen if we really prayed compassionately? Be interesting to see some of those people come to the Lord, wouldn't it? Things would change that way. What change? That's the change that we're talking about. That's the change that we know that works. So evangelistic praying, it's dealing with personal compassion, involvement with the person who is such a sinner. And we want to understand the glory of God in all of this that's happening and having sympathy and compassion. God, You are asking a lot. This is really hard for me to swallow. Now, He says all men. I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. Now this is universal. In intent and in scope. Now I do want to clarify that just because we pray for all men does not mean that all men, all men, women, children, whatever, whoever, are going to be saved, right? Because if God saved everybody, what's that called? Universalism. Nowhere in Scripture do we see that. But yet He's telling us to pray for uh, men. Now, let's go back to the context, and that's how we interpret. First of all, who's Paul writing to? He's writing to Timothy. Timothy is at Ephesus. At Ephesus are Jews and Gentiles. What a strange combination to come together as one group of people. Some of them are learning what that's about, and they've been converted. But yet, some don't learn. You have the Judaizers. The Gentiles are bringing in their philosophies in the church, right? Both of the groups, some of them are going to have a tendency to be exclusive. They're going to play favorites to their own kind, right? They're going to get off on this corner. The other group's going to get off on this corner. (laughs) And the Lord has freed us from those kind of divisions, those kind of walls. Paul counterattacks this idea by showing the need to pray for all men to be saved since the Gospel is universal in that it's to be going to everywhere. We don't have to worry about, hey, maybe God hasn't chosen them, so, hey, why should I even waste my words on them? We don't know, right? We don't know who He's going to bring in. He uses us. In the Old Testament, the Jews were commanded to be witnesses to who the true God was. And you know what? And that's found in Exodus. You find that just before the Ten Commandments. I think you find it in Exodus 19. They were to be witnesses to the world. Mission failed. (laughs) No accomplishment there at all, was it? A total failure. When you think of the likes of Jonah. Remember when Jonah went to Nineveh? God told him to go there. And he knew how evil and wicked those people were. And so he refused and he ran away. God will not let you run away. God will bring you and put you where He wants you. Uh, And it might take a while. You might continue to revolt against Him, but I can tell you, if you're His, He's going to make sure that you're a child of His and He will make sure that you do what you're supposed to be doing eventually. Now, the church has the same mission. 
We're to take the gospel to people who hate God, uh, say he doesn't exist or whatever. So he says, first of all, this is the means of importance. This is urgency at that time and today. Why? Well, because all men everywhere are to repent. Go to Acts 17, verse 30. Seventeen thirty. Boy, we have a mission to people who are not in favor of the message we have. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. That is what our message is. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's our message. We have to tell them that they need to repent. Repent because they're sinners. Repent because God is a holy God. Repent because there is judgment coming. That's not a favorable message, is it? That's what He tells us to take out. That's what we're to be praying about. That they would repent and come to Christ. If you look in Acts 3.26, back a few chapters, For you first, God raised up His servant, Christ, and sent Him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. That's repentance. Every one of you was wicked. He says, here's what happened. Christ, the servant, turned us from that way. Repentance means just that. To turn from the way we were going. We were walking one way and He turns us around. Sounds like Billy Graham there, doesn't it? Repent. Repent. Well, okay, all men. And then in Timothy, Paul writes to kings and all those in authority. And sure, sure, here in in the book of Timothy, he's talking just to Timothy and Ephesus. Surely, that is what it means. Well, the Word of God is definitely active today, isn't it? And I would say... I won't say for you, but I have a tendency, and I'll admit it. And I need to get better at it. I have a tendency not to pray for them. Sometimes I just forget that it ought to be up near the top of the list. Because it does make an impact on all of us. The rulers at that time, and at any time, they're usually abusive, hateful, they will even kill Christians. We know Nero, we think of biblically, you think of Pilate, you think of Herod, some of those characters. I mean, like none of the leaders were Christians. Nero was the emperor in those days. And I'm sure the church would really relish the idea of praying for him. Don't you think that? Paul's just saying here, of course, Paul, of course, we're doing that all the time. Don't you just think, we can't wait to go to prayer and pray for Nero. He was wicked. He was vile. He was wretched. He was a persecutor of the church. He killed people that were believers. But God meant for prayers to be said for who? All men. For kings and all who were in authority. All kinds. At all times. Any of them. That's rather incredible. From local to national. 
Now, what would have been the temptation of their hearts? Really, I mean, what would they have been thinking? I think their temptation would have been if they prayed for people at all to pray that God would just bless Nero and final end to oblivion. <laughs> just get him out of here. <laughs> that might have been a good subject matter for prayer at their Wednesday night prayer meeting in Ephesus, right? I'm sure they talked about him all the time. Hard to swallow. But Paul doesn't even say here that we're to pray for their removal. I've often thought of that. Boy, if God, you could take him out, then we could maybe get somebody in better to represent you. Doesn't that sound right? We could replace them with Christians. We're never told in here that leaders have to be Christians. They are there to protect us from the external, outside of this country, from the internal. People have protection, police and such. Also for um, the economy, dealing with finances, money that has to be done, roads and all those things. Those things have to be, how would you like to have no roads or not developed at all? And the government does that. you know. So we have a lot to thank the Lord for in, in using those people. So some... Uh, would be, even though they may not even be believers, could be better leaders than a lot of Christians. So you don't have to be worrying about, hey, I have to pray for a Christian. If it's not a Christian, then I am not going to vote. Because nowhere in here does it ever say that. It does say that we're to pray for all those in authority, and God has put them there, and we'll show that Scripture. Wow. Boy, Dennis, are you sure you're on the right right manner here? <laughs> Reading this passage is rather difficult sometimes, you think about it. Uh, well, how did the early church do this uh, after Paul wrote Timothy and then later on the first and second century? With Tertullian, an early church father, theologian living about 160 to 230, very early in the church, wasn't it? He said this, The Christian is the enemy of no man, least of all the emperor. For we know that since He has been appointed by God, it is necessary that we should love Him and reverence Him and honor Him and desire His safety. Therefore, we sacrifice for the safety of the emperor. And there was another one, Theopolis of Antioch. Remember the church in Antioch? said this, The honor that I will give the emperor is all the greater because I will not worship him But I will pray for him. I will worship no one but the true and real God, for I know that the emperor was appointed by him. Those give real honor to the emperor who are well disposed to him, who obey him, and who pray for him. Such practices are seen in the writings of the 2nd, 3rd century church. When they met together, they prayed for the salvation of their leaders. We do that too. It's because God is moving us to, to pray for people. What a movement of God. If this was to go all across the whole nation, there are many times there have been all sorts of different prayer things, gatherings of hundreds of people, thousands of people. And it's so easy to speak evil of them, but praying for the salvation. And I can justify that in my mind. 
It doesn't mean you want them there. It doesn't mean you are to vote them in. No, we're to use our conscience and we're to use our wisdom. If we have a better choice, and that's the opportunity we have, then go for that. We know that Christians today are tempted to look at our nation and say, you know what, the way that our culture is, things have gone to pot. <laughs> I mean, it's, all, it's already done. It's over. You know what? You think of Hollywood is against everything that we stand for. The government is going after us. The judicial aspect is going after us and they're all undermining the foundations of our, our nation. The temptation is to be angry about it. You've got it. I've been there many times. And sometimes I think it was right because it was a righteous anger. And other times my motive might have been wrong. Here's what Paul's saying to us. Here's how I want you to pray, folks. I want you to be praying and entreating and petitioning and supplicating to God that they would come to a saving knowledge of Christ. And here we see something of God's direction for the church's prayer. And I think it speaks volumes, loads, as we live in a post-Christian era. Those times are gone. I think of the 50s when most people had some kind of a church here in this country. Whether they went on Sunday or not, that was another matter. But that was a thing that people did. I don't even make that a priority at all anymore. But uh, then I think it speaks to churches who are under extreme persecution in this day, in this very hour. Underground churches. Our brothers and sisters. Now, as we move on, for kings and all who are in authority, they have authority over us. What we're doing is that the reason we're praying, what's the reason? And we'll get to that in in a few moments. But we have to realize that there's an authority that they have. Authority has been given to them. It's not that they made it up. They give their own authority. They think they are. And they abuse it. But they're given authority by God. And what we want is to have freedom to worship, to evangelize, to do whatever we want when we gather together. And when we're individuals. And to be able to do that. To do it freely. And not get persecuted for it. I don't know about you, but all my lifetime, I really haven't sensed uh, any pressure... I have sensed that in some cases, but nothing really ever came about it. Sometimes you'd wonder, going back to the early days <laughs> at our house, some of you might remember that we had helicopters flying over the house quite frequently. Those black helicopters, remember those? And they would just kind of hover over the house. And later found out from somebody who joined our church, Carl told us that there were people watching <laughs> us from the outside. But never was anything taken away from us. We had maybe some thoughts that we were being agitated. But we weren't trying to agitate them. We were just coming together in our Bible studies and our worship. But we are to do this. We need to announce, whenever the government is wrong, to announce that they are morally wrong according to God's Word. may not change a thing. And when somebody spouts out something that's moral and they're running for an office, they're going to be shot at by their own people even. And we've seen that in this election. And things were um, taken much further than what they really were. We're talking about principles of life 
And people got upset when they were talking about just the right to life. (laughs) That's really what it was about. That was all it was about. Isn't that incredible? So, that's telling. There's inklings here of of things that uh, could uh, make it harder for us. But we never want to cause a civil disobedience that's uncaused for. We want to be citizens that people at least know there's respect there. Now, we've been very blessed. I think we've been very blessed in, in our lives and in this country. I think we've had a quiet and tranquil life. I think, I think we know what that means. There are other people uh, in the world who are Christians, I don't think they've ever got to experience a quiet, peaceful, tranquil life because they worship God. So this is certainly a good reason to pray for our authorities that we would continue to have the opportunity to give out God's Word and to live it out in the way that we see fit. Uh, And he says, in all godliness and dignity. And godliness deals with our attitude and conduct before God in all things. Godliness. And the idea of dignity refers to our holy behavior, our godliness that is before men. So, godly before God godly before men, that we would not ruin his testimony. That kind of ring a bell there? So if we live that out, it can make an impact. Now, there are reasons that we are to pray for them. Verse 3. This is good. Pray for all men. Pray for all the lost. Pray for all the evil people. Pray for all the people who hate you. That's not too far-fetched because Jesus said that. You've heard it said... Love your neighbor. Jesus comes on the scene in the Sermon on the Mount and He just turns everything around. He says, you've heard it said that way? I want to tell you, love your enemies. That's hard to swallow. People who hate you. People who would like to kill you. Like to silence you. God says, pray for them. It's good. It's beneficial. It's beneficial. They might even become saved. It's beneficial for the lost to be saved, isn't it? That's a good thing. And more importantly, I like this one. It's acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. That means it's pleasing to Him when we pray for people who hate Him and hate us and hate everything that we believe in. And God says, when you're praying for them, I am pleased. This is good. It's acceptable. This is a great thing. I thank You, Lord, that we have the opportunity to be pleasing to You. And He says, God, our Savior. Just We can just throw this one in. We'll get a little doctrinal issue in here. This means that God is our Savior. You know what He's saying? Jesus is God. Because who is Savior? What does Jesus' name mean? Savior. God, our Savior. Jesus is God. That's a great passage to use when somebody doubts the deity of Christ. And you can say, oh, I just read in Timothy here, God, our Savior, who is that? Christ. Hmm, that's interesting. I like that. Okay, God, our Savior. That's a pretty good one. God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved. Come to the knowledge of the truth. We work into verse 4 here. I find this fascinating. He desires all men to be saved. Now, this causes a little bit of tension. Friction. 
Now we know God is not going to save all men. Now just think about it. We know if He saves all men, then that, what does that make Him? A universalist. And so there's no, no reason to worry about hell or anything. Everybody's going to heaven because His desire is that He's going to, he, he's going to save all men. So make sure you pray for Him, but He's, he's going to save them. Well, He's not saying that. He desires all men to be saved. Well, what do we do with that? Well, there's a lot of different ways we can go on it. The Bible already says that people are not all of them going to be saved. Matter of fact, there's going to be a few that be that find it, even says. So there are some people who will not be saved, and we know Judas is one of them, right? That's pretty easy, right? He was not saved. There are many others who are not going to be saved. Many rejected Christ. As a matter of fact, as a whole, the nation of Israel rejected Christ. They're not saved. So how do we square this statement that God desires all men to be saved and yet not all are saved? That sounds like a contradiction, didn't it? What is going on here? What's wrong with our Scripture here? He desires men to be saved. The point of this passage, first of all, is not to say that God has willed all to be saved. Alright? And so if they're not, God's will then has failed, hasn't it? Right? You can say, well, he's contradicting himself here. He wants all to be saved, and we know they're not. So God failed. Well, God can't fail. So what do we have here? We have quite a dilemma, right? Well, I think the point of this passage is to make what Ezekiel said. Remember what Ezekiel said about the living God? Over and over, he repeats throughout that book, I, the Lord your God, do not delight in the death of the wicked, but I delight when sinners turn from their wicked way and return to Me. God desires that sinners be saved. And that's what Paul is saying here. Paul is telling us something about the delight of the heart of God. He doesn't delight in the destruction of the wicked. He is not some ogre in the sky that loves to see people ruining their lives and cast into hell and he's up there going, <laughs> it's not what he does. But he will punish the wicked. Boy, the tension here is incredible. Yeah, it is. You know what his real delight is? That sinners be saved. Now we believe that, don't we? Because that was us. And Paul is impelling us to pray. Now because God has this desire to see the world come into Christ, we are to pray for all the people in the world or people that we know of that are lost, that need Him. Well, there's this question. God desires all men to be saved. Is that the same thing as His will? Well, if it does, doesn't that mean that God's will isn't coming to pass? Since all are not saved? We know all are not saved. We say very quickly, no. Desires here have to be distinguished from God's will. There's a sense in which God has a disposition for the salvation of all sinners. And yet, this is not part of His secret plan. 
God has a will that's going to come about. And it's cutting through. A lot of those things we know. A lot of other things we don't. What He tells us is to go out and pray for all the lost. Pray for people specifically who you know are lost. Pray for those authorities. That's the idea. And there is a difference between desire and will. There are certain desires that we have, but we don't really ultimately know that we're going to even do that. Hey, I'd like to do this. As far as God is concerned, He tells this, but at the same time, He's, you know, He has His perfect plan and people that He's going to bring into His kingdom. We don't know who they are, but we pray for them and we take out the commission to them. Uh, that will really make you be dizzy. But that's, that's the tension of it all. And it does give leeway that the truth is truth here. Our finite minds can't ultimately understand it. There are different uh, interpretations. We could go with all those, but that's not my point this morning. And I, and I could give some more. The, the whole point, though, is that we know that we pray for people we don't appreciate sometimes. Look in Romans 13. And this is where it shows that God is the one who appoints His people to lead. Whoever they are, believer, unbeliever, He's going to put people into positions. He's the one that even established the positions. He's in total control. Verse 1, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. Wow. Did you see that? There is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore it is necessary to be in subjection not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes for rulers or servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. That's hard to wrestle with, knowing that they're not serving God as far as they're concerned. But ultimately, yeah, they are. They're pawns. They're pawns in the hand of an almighty ruler. Look in First Peter chapter 2. Well, when you believe a sovereign God, it sure asks you to deal with a lot of things, doesn't it? 1 Peter 2.13 Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil. But use it as bond slaves to God. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Peter is writing during the time of emperor that hated Christianity. They're ordained by God. 
Peter understood that. I don't think he understood it when Jesus was walking on earth here and he was with him for those three years, but he understood it later because he wrote it. He's inspired by God's Spirit. He's full of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's a reason. That's a reason to pray for people, isn't it? Pray for the lost. Pray for his leaders. It's pleasing to God. And these leaders are ordained by God. Then God uses them as His instruments. And I like this. This is where it really starts making sense. Go to Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5. You notice I said it starts making sense. <laughs> and at first here, to a Jew, they go, what? what are you saying? Uh, Isaiah 10, 5. And... Uh, when we studied Habakkuk, <laughs> it took him a while to understand that too. But he did when it came to the end of the book. 10.5 Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. What's he saying? I'm going to use that evil nation, the Assyrians, those pagans who don't know me, the true God, I'm going to use them to punish you, Israel. I'm going to use them as instruments. Boy, God is not safe, is He? He does things that are backwards, it seems like. What kind of God is this? Go to Proverbs 21.1. And you know what? This really speaks to us. We love this one. Every one of us loves this. So if you get down and distraught over some results, come Tuesday or Wednesday, look at this verse. <laughs> the king's heart is like Channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever He wishes. Or if we're praising God. Because things went just the way that we wanted. You know what? God takes their heart and they're just like channels. He puts it into the way that He's going to do. He turns it wherever He wishes. Man, that is absolute control. I'm glad of that. Right? Look in Proverbs 19, verse 21. Many plans are in a man's heart, mm-hmm. but the counsel of the Lord will stand. Are you encouraged? That's what all this is about. That's encouraging to me. How about Daniel chapter 4? You had a king that was very prideful over his kingdom. He was ruling and reigning and he was the man of the hour. (laughs) He was the man of the world. Verse 34 and 35 of chapter 4. But at the end of that period, after he had been like an animal, God judged him for seven years. He's eating like like cattle out there in the grass. But at the end of the period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High, El Elyon, and praised and honored Him who lives forever. He's eternal. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth and no one can ward off His hand or say to Him, what have you done? Wow, this came from one who had been there at the top of the world, a terrible leader. Anti-God, he wanted to be worshipped, really. You know what? He worshipped God in the end, didn't he? You look at this, he said God is absolutely sovereign. Nobody can change his mind and he's going to do what he does. 
All for His glory. Man, those are encouraging, aren't they? Another reason? Prayer is our spiritual weapon. We don't have carnal weapons. We don't, we don't fight with the guns and shoot back. But we pray for them. To knock down those lofty speculations. Those fortresses of ideas that people have and we're to shoot right through them and we start with prayer. That is where our war is at. That's where the church wins its wars. And then the next one uh, that we'd have a reason to pray is, of course we've been talking about this all along, is the salvation. That's the main emphasis of all this. A deep sense of the need of the lost. Oh, if that would ever be impressed on us. And as we get back to Timothy there, we go to another reason. He says it in verse 5, For there is one God, one mediator, mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. It's consistent, first of all, with God's nature. To pray for the lost is consistent because here's what it is. Here's the message that we have to say. Yeah, there's one God. And of course, the Muslims would say, that's right, there is one God. His name is Allah. And He's not a personal God. No, that's not the God we're talking about because He is no God. We're talking about the God, the Creator, Sustainer, the only one God. And that cuts across the grain of the thinking of the world and it cuts right across the grain of the Hindus, of the Buddhists, the Muslims, the Jews. One God. Even though they say, yeah, but they believe in one God. Yeah, the one true God. And the one mediator. It's consistent with the person of Christ. Boy, he says something here. I think it's positively, absolutely, politically incorrect. And if you were to go on a Saturday afternoon and walk down Missouri Boulevard or uh, down High Street and say, there is only one God and only one way to Him and that's through the person of Christ, I would imagine you would probably get a debate going up very quickly. Why should we pray for all people? Well, because there's only one God. And they think, a lot of them think they're going there because of their God. There's only one Savior. Now that's really making it really down to the nitty gritty, isn't it? There's only one mediator. That's why we pray for them because they don't see it that way. His name is Jesus Christ. And He is the one hope, the only hope of all humanity. He's saying all roads don't lead up to the mountain. He's saying there are not many ways to God. He's not saying that all religions are the same, is He? He's saying the opposite. He's saying there's only one way of salvation. There's only one hope. That's in the person of Christ. There's only one hope. If we don't pray for the world, then what hope do they have? They don't have any because there's only one God and there's only one Christ. They have no hope apart from Jesus Christ. The one mediator. Acts 4.12, you're very familiar with. And there it says it right there. Right in the very outset of the early church, they had to confront them with this. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. That was to Jewish people who didn't know Christ. And he says, 
It's only through Him. Well, you know what that does? That throws people into jail at that time. The intention of the work of Christ, and we're about ready to finish in verse 6, who gave Himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time, and here we get this all thing again, who gave Himself as a ransom for all. Matthew twenty twenty eight, He was a ransom for the many. We also know that few there be that find it. Now we're taking that many to few. We've gone from all to many. Many are called, but few are chosen. The calling goes out to everybody. That's the general call. There's another call that's the effective call. The effectual call. The effectual call is to all the ones who are His sheep. John 10 says those sheep will then come to Him when He calls. They will respond. They'll know His voice. They know Him then. But people who are not His will not respond. But the thing is, you say, what's the deal then here? What's this ransom? Well, ransom or atonement means a covering of sin and acquitting the wrath of God. God is now pleased with what Christ did on the on the cross. Our sins have been bought and paid for. He paid for the sinners that He was going to bring into His kingdom. He, the, so if Jesus covered the sins and turned away the wrath of God for all people, what would that mean? All the sins are paid for, then all people are saved. Right? We're still staying in the context that here is God's desire. Here's what this... It, it is um, sufficient. The work of Christ is sufficient for all people in the world. But it is efficient for His people. The Bible does not um, say anything about that His ransom pays for everybody. It's not to mean that Jesus Christ is the atoning sacrifice for every last person who is alive and who's ever lived, whoever will be living. But He's saying this is the man who atones for the sins and He gives it to not only you Jews, not only you Gentiles here in Ephesus, but from all people from all over at all times. There are people that are all over the world. The ransom has been paid for those ones that are ultimately His. And I close with this. The fact that there's only one way of salvation is Jesus Christ. Paul wants us to pray that the nations, all people, everywhere, even our enemies, would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's what he's stressing. Our prayers are for all. Turn to anybody. And that's the worst of people. And so, Christians are to pray for all kinds and classes and conditions of people. Because they're all in the same condition we were before He converted us. He converted our souls. And that's our duty. And boy, when you see this Timothy passage, it's rather demanding. It seems so different than the way that we think. And we think, no, this is the way that God thinks. And so we're to pray for enemies. Pray for all authorities. Pray for all the ones who need salvation. And so...
Remember this week what God's total agenda is about. He is the King. Let's pray.